The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. So we are in the middle of discussing what kinship looks like in the ancient world, all right? And I wanted to start off by reading a quote from the book that kind of helps us to, to, to center ourselves in our conversation. So I'm going to be reading from page uh, 22. The authors write, in collectivist societies, the individual is the sum of the community. The community identity, characteristics, Values and talents form the identity of all who belong to that community. Collectives are defined by the things that they share with others. Things such as shared blood, shared interests, shared history, shared land, and shared loyalty. They define their core identity as being part of a group in distinction to other groups. This is what we mean by collectivism. So the book that we're studying is about what does it mean for us to read scripture from our own cultural perspective, which is very strongly individualistic. What does it look like for us to read scripture in that way and to recognize that the the writers of scripture and the, the people in the stories that they're relating to us don't live in a world where they make the kinds of assumptions that we make about the individualist world. They're making different assumptions. And the trouble is that sometimes when they are communicating stories, they don't include every single detail in the, in, in the event that they're relating because in cultures, the most important things for us go without being said. And so they, they leave some of those things out. And the trouble is that when we read scripture and we read passages like some of them that we're going to look at today, when they leave those details out, we do exactly the same thing. Those things go, that go without being said in our culture, we just assume that those are the case in the text. And what ends up happening is that we misread. We don't understand and we don't hear what the, what the authors of, of the original text are trying to communicate to us. And so what can happen is that we can hear those words and we can interpret them or we can draw conclusions from them or we can draw applications from them that don't line up with a biblical worldview. They line up with a worldview that just happens to look a lot like our own individualistic Western American evangelical worldview. So we're trying to take a step back from that and understand what does what does the worldview of, of a person in the ancient world and and uh, look like? And to understand that, we're gonna the the authors of these the, these books use their own experiences in non-Western cultures in order to uh, to explain those those kinds of events, at least to explain some of them. Not that it's a one to one kind of a comparison, but the stories that they share help us to understand and to sort of see the 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 picture that's being described to us in Scripture in a more uh, vibrant, colorful way. Okay, so in the last chapter, we started talking about kinship, and we talked about how one becomes part of a kinship circle. What does it mean to belong to a kinship circle? And we discussed that in a kinship circle, we have 
relationships with the people who are around us that are that are very close to us in a family unit and we refer to that family unit in scripture as a household sometimes it is a word that we misunderstand right off the bat because when we think of household we read it as a nuclear family and of course that doesn't exist in well honestly that doesn't exist in most of the world today but it certainly didn't exist in their world it it was it was an intermingled network of a number of different families that were all together because they gave mutual support and mutual protection uh, and mutual resources that they they lived together and they depended on each other in a tight-knit community and that was a household and when you had a group of households that were connected together in that way, those are referred to as a clan. And that's so, it's a, a little bit larger, but it's still kind of on a small, like a neighborhood sort of a scale. And when it gets larger than that, when it becomes a, a village or even a region, then we talk about that as being a tribe. So those individual ways are still those, inter, the, those intermingled networks. They're just on slightly larger scales, but the people in those networks understand themselves, their own personal identity as I am we. Whatever the we identity of the group is, that is usually the way that people within that network understand themselves. I am so-and-so, and I belong to so-and-so a group, and we're part of such-and-such such a house. And that's the way that they understand. Their identity is connected not to their own personality, but rather their identity is connected to the group that they belong to. Okay? So we talked about the, the, there are several different ways that people can, can come into that kind of an environment. Obviously, the, the way that most people enter into that environment is that you're born into it. Uh, but you can be married into it. You can be adopted into it. We talked about the ways that people can use uh, religious belief and ritual to, to cross those barriers between those groups. And so there are a number of different ways that we can become a part of this. But what I want us to hold in our mind is that kinship, this idea of being connected to the people that we live with, that we live around, is a basing a basic building block of community the community is the foundational element of the community is this kinship if we understand kinship and we pay attention to especially when we pay attention to the markers in scripture when we learn to read those words and hear scripture saying those things even when it's not saying them then the other things will sort of fall into place. It can still be a little bit difficult for us to understand and always catch when when there is, you know, uh, an, an intermediate, like a, you know, a, a, a person who's, who's, who's a go-between, who's brokering a deal between two people. And it might be difficult for us to understand, like, why shame is being used in this context, in this environment. But if we start by understanding that, that people in this community understand themselves as a part of the community, that they belong to this community, and that that's their identity, then that gets us a, a, a huge step forward in, in helping to, to understand Scripture and, and to, to read it in, the, in, in, in a fuller sense in which it was written. So if kinship is, is a family that you are born into or that you are brought into, then what does it look like for us to live in that family? And of course, there are also times where people are going to leave that family unit. And what does it look like for people to separate from, a kin from kinship ties? What does it look like for us to exist in the midst of kinship ties and uphold and support and be responsible for those kinship ties? Last week, when we were talking about kinship, we talked about family genealogies. And we looked specifically at the genealogy 
of Jesus that's given to us in the first chapter of Matthew. And in this genealogy, as we read through it, we find that Matthew is telling a story in a particular way, and he, he skips over some people for very specific reasons in, in that retelling of the genealogy of Jesus. And as he is laying out this genealogy, he also includes a number of names that we may be familiar with, some we may not be familiar with. There probably are, let's be honest, there are a lot of names on that list that we're probably not familiar with. Uh, but there are some of them that maybe we hear those names and we think I should be familiar with it, but maybe I'm not, right? And I think that the first of those is Tamar. What I want us to do this evening is I want us to look at three different, uh, three different issues or let's call them conflicts or crises within a, within a kinship unit and, and discuss what it is that is happening, what it is that needs to happen, and then I want us to step back a little bit and say, what does it look like for us to take the principle of kinship and especially remaining in kinship, the responsibilities that we as parts of this kinship group have, what does it look like for us to be a part of this and then to to see Christ at work in the middle of that as well. Because, of course, that's the, the whole purpose of this. The purpose of this is not so that we can, you know, be excellent readers of Scripture and, you know, we can, we can just, uh, you know, understand everything and we'll be Bible scholars and, and, and that'll be fantastic. If you're going to be a Bible scholar, you should be a Bible scholar. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I want us to do is to read Scripture and find Christ in every page. What I want us to do is to be able to open up Scripture and not have to be able to set aside the distractions, to be able to read Scripture well, and in reading it well, to, to, to grow closer to Jesus, to grow more into Jesus' image, to hear, to hear the gospel spoken to us everywhere that we look. And it's there, but sometimes it's hard for us to hear, especially in passages like this first one. This is from Genesis 38, the story of Tamar. Now, as you guys were reading this chapter, quick show of hands, honestly, who remembered right offhand the story of Tamar? got a couple of us, right? Like maybe half, maybe less than half. Not very many of us were familiar right off the bat with the story of Tamar because it happens in Genesis and it happens in a part of Genesis where if we're being honest, our eyes have started to glaze over at this point. Okay. So this is, this is after all the exciting stuff with Joseph has happened. Uh, and, and, and then there's just sort of this lull in the story. And in, during this lull in the story, we just have this Side trip. It's it's like a, a you know a, a flash over. What do you call that in in a movie where you just suddenly jump over and you have like a, a you know a bottle episode somewhere else? Uh, a meanwhile, right? Meanwhile, right? <laughs> meanwhile, back in back in Judea, uh, it wasn't called back, back in Canaan, right? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Judah is the is the firstborn son of the other uh, wife in in the story. So he's the the firstborn son of of Leah, and he has three sons. And his first son marries a woman and then dies and they don't have a child. And the, the expectation in the culture is that, uh, it, is that she still has to be taken care of. <clears throat> and so the way that somebody is taken care of is by being a part of the inheritance. But in this world, there's no way for the inheritance to pass directly to the woman who is married to his son and her name is Tamar. And so the expectation in the world at that time was that she would go and live for a period of time with the next youngest brother and that when she was pregnant and had a son, then her first husband's portion of the estate would pass to her son. So she was cared for and then that portion of the estate was cared for and everything sort of remained in this community. 
But the second son doesn't want to have anything to do with that. And so he goes off and does all of the things that he wants to do and, and ignores his responsibility. And he dies. Um, and the youngest son is still pretty young. And so Judah tells her, you know, go off and, you know, go back to your father's house. And when he's old enough, I'll call you. And then you can be like, you know, sort of kind of pretends he's married to him. And then, uh, you know, and then everything will be good after that. Okay. Uh, well, the kid grows up and nobody sends for Tamar because Judah has just kind of written the story off. And so she tricks Judah into sleeping with her and she gets pregnant. And then Judah tries to have her killed. And then she brings evidence that he's the father of the child. And, and it ends with him saying, she's more righteous than I. And in our own like Western uh, you know, post-enlightenment, post-Victorian yeah, sort of world that we live in, post-Victorian world. The, this this story is just full of, like, shocking, horrifying things. Like, all right, first off, they just, like, trade wives if people die? I don't understand this. The book, I think, does an excellent job of sort of explaining why Le Leverite, it's, it's in, in this world, it's called Leverite marriage. So why this exists? It exists because when when she is is married, she brings a portion of her father's household um, usually it's goods, but sometimes it involves people. She brings them with her, and they are now joined to this new household. And so what Judah did when his son died is he kept all of her things and sent her home, even though it was his responsibility now to take care of her, because when he received those things, he received her as a daughter. We talked about that last week, that one of the ways that she became part of a new kinship. So what he did is he said, this daughter is too, uh, is, is too much for me to deal with. I'm just going to kick her out and send her back. It was very, very shameful to him to, to do this. He, 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 he revealed the kind of character that he had in doing this. And obviously his son's character was revealed later on. And the this, this same kind of behavior of we're just going to discard people that, that are, are, are uncomfortable or make our lives difficult. Uh, and that's kind of the way that they treat people until finally they're made accountable for their behavior. And finally... There, what's that? You were going to say something. Do you think Jacob is also kind of, he provided this example as well? Like he kind of started the trend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jacob we. Jacob and then Judah yeah. and then. Yeah, I mean, in our first meeting, we kind of talked about like the, the whole story of, of Joseph and his brothers. And this, you know, this is one of those brothers. Like this is all a Jacob issue. Jacob's got this, these deep character defects in, in him. And he is very kind of standoffish and he just throws people away whenever he needs to. And he. Uh, he, he just ignores all of his responsibility. And lo and behold, his oldest son is also behaving exactly like his dad does. When, 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 you know, when, when property values are, are on the line, when, when, when the, the family's resources are on the line, he just sort of says, well, you know, everything will be fine. Why don't you just go back to your people? And, you know, he, just, he treats people like things the same way that his, the, that his father Jacob treats people like things. Actually, I'd say he treats them as less than things because he valued the things more That's than true. Them. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, like, I think we said last week, it's like the, the only thing Jacob did right was listening to the Lord every single time he showed up. It's right. like, which, to be fair, in the biblical story is more than a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> right? it's like <clears throat> so he in didn't this, do a lot right. In this story... The, the, the version that we often have in, in our, our Western reading of it is there's some weird stuff going on and then God kills somebody and then the, the woman becomes a prostitute and it's very sort of strange and we don't really understand it and it's off-putting. We're like, you know, but if there's any bad guys, it's, 
it's probably the, the woman who becomes a prostitute and maybe Judah, but we can't really put our finger on why. I think that the, the way that the book describes this is, is such a refreshing view because it paints, it, it paints a picture of what it was like to be left without things. And this idea of like people who are in the prime of life, people who are very young becoming widowed, uh, you know, that was just a, a, that was a normal part of life in, in the ancient world. And so in this case, what, what you have is a woman who is vulnerable. She's vulnerable for everything because she doesn't have a connection with her father's house. We know this because it seems like at some level, she's kind of living on the streets in between the, the second and third son. That's the story, to, again, it goes without being said, but but this idea that she she not only leaves behind Jacob, but she's she's uh, Jacob is a or, I'm sorry, not ja- she leaves behind Jacob's house. But when Judah comes past, Judah is in the is in the habit of stopping at one of the shrines to hang out with the prostitutes who are there. Uh, and so she's living in a situation where that's the only option that she has. And, and in the ancient world, it was the only option that a lot of people had. Uh, there was there was slavery. That was a, a, another way that you could find, uh, you know, shelter and, and covering. Or there were, you know, there, there, there were not a lot of options there. We have somebody who is, who is vulnerable. And the hope that we have as we're reading this story, the thing that we're longing for is for somebody to do what? When we hear, finally, when we understand the situation that she's in, what is it that we are longing to have somebody do for Tamar as we're reading that story? Yeah. I'm wanting her to have a home. To have a home, right? Yeah, exactly. So the thing that we're looking for is that there would be somebody who would step in and protect her. Now, it does happen in the story, right? In, in, this, in this story, that's exactly what happens. And she forces the issue. She forces the issue, which is just amazing. Uh, that she, she takes this initiative and she forces her way back in and claims what is hers. She claims her own property and her own place in her own household. That's the part of it I think that we miss, is that she wasn't, she wasn't just cut off. This, she was being sent back to her father's house. That's not her house. This is her house. These are her people. These are her brothers. These are her sisters. This is her home. And Judah says, no, you're inconvenient. And he sends her away. Right. But she doesn't she she doesn't let that stand. And she, you know, she she uses every trick in the book to get back into the house and finally does. And and she is she she's she's given it doesn't say this, but she she's give she should be given. What two, three, three quarters of Judah's estate. Um, because she was the only wife to two of his sons, so the the, the firstborn and the firstborn, and then uh, the other. It's almost like she's doing that. What Jesus said with the be wise as, as um, serpents mm-hmm. and innocent as doves. Mm-hmm. You can see why in in Jesus's culture, in that Middle Eastern culture, those kinds of stories are stories that that continue. People continue telling those stories where somebody is. Somebody is taken advantage of by people in power, but they are smart enough to change the to to, to change the the circumstances so that they get what they deserved in the end, uh, and that the people who tried to abuse people or take advantage of people who were who were weaker than them, um, they they get they get shown out for who they are and, and what they were trying to do. I do think it's interesting uh, in here after reading this section. You know, they mentioned there's that uh, the verse where the people come to Judah and say uh, 
your daughter-in-law has become pregnant from uh, prostitution. Mm -hmm. I had always read it from that uh, prior with the emphasis on daughter-in-law, on mm. her. But now after this, I read it again, and yeah. I heard the emphasis on your. Mm -hmm. Right, that the, the, this is the it's community like, coming to him and saying, shame on you. Yeah. This is, mm -hmm. this is on you. But, like, no, who, what kind of man her. lets this happen to his daughter? Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's the voice that they come at him with, and he's like, oh, well, then I'm just going to erase her, which... You know, we can we, we can when we have more time talk about because that also is something that continues to happen and, in in collectivist cultures and, and around I the think world. Also, as well, we we don't tend to realize you know since she's no longer part of her father's household, but is part of uh, Judah's household, mm -hmm. and she gets cut off basically mm -hmm. from that. Um, in that uh, culture, exile and death were so closely tied mm -hmm. yeah. that when like things with the death penalty were given in terms of like, you know, they should be cut off from the people. Mm -hmm. Scholars say they it, it, it's really ambiguous as to whether they mean exile or death mm -hmm. because those concepts are so closely linked. So mm -hmm. it's not simply that, you know, he's mistreating her, treating her as a thing or less than a thing. This is, based on what I've heard here, then someone who is very apathetically sending someone he is supposed to care for mm -hmm. off to her death essentially yeah yeah, yeah. and it, it helps when we're reading through like levitical laws when it says mm -hmm. being cut off from your people it adds a weight to it that i don't think that we understand in in our own context because yeah you were going to say something wondering, is it would it have been considered shameful in that culture for her to have her father-in-law side though it doesn't seem that way. I know it doesn't, but I'm just wondering. Yeah. That wasn't done, though. I mean, I mean maybe not normal as a, circumstances. Yeah. But, but this wasn't a normal circumstance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely those, those laws about father and son having the same woman. Yeah, well, later. Not yeah, yeah. not at this but point. Later on, though, yeah. Culture, if, that's reflecting something. if that reflects like a common, like in, in, in the Canaanite kind of yeah. circle, so it could be. It's also weird. Well, yeah, it definitely does. It seems like this is way out of the norm, which, you know, also for the, you know, for, for the people that are cataloging the events, that's why probably they, they said, okay, now we, we do need to address this story, right? And th th yeah, we, this is an important one because it's, it, it's so distinct from everything else that's going on. Yeah, because, you know, like a lot of those laws, of course, are all centered around keeping <clears throat> chaos to a minimum. And, of course, you can imagine the kind of chaos that would come, especially in that culture of the father, the son having, you know, right. same woman. Right. But, again, this, this, in this one particular situation, it's the sons are already, for one reason or another, He's, out, yeah, out Judah has refused to give her yeah. a son, which is what he owes her. Yeah. Uh, and so she takes a son. And yeah, is it a little, he, little odd? But... Yes. Well, and also, the I think the authors in the book, at least, they, they mention specifically, they're like, now Judah does say, she's more righteous than I, which is a really low bar. So it's, <laughs> it, it doesn't necessarily say that what she did was okay. It says that what she did was... Um, was the situation was, was, right situation. It, I, it was it was just um it, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make everything all right it doesn't everything doesn't become okay just because you know the the bad guy got it there there are good ways and bad ways to to win so, so would you, you say, say i acknowledge my shame right so, 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 the, oh sorry oh i was just gonna say so real quick so 
is it could it just be like a sort of you know desperate time calls for desperate measures sort of deal? I would I, I think so, but I also I think it's important for us to remember that like when we're reading scripture, the 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 narrative here is not prescriptive. Like it's right. not it's not describing the way it should be, no. but just describing like what happened and yeah. and the response that is happening in in each of these things. All right. and in response to the, the, he said, she's more righteous than I. The Bible doesn't say she's more, like, I think they that, the pointed true. out that mm-hmm. God, did, God didn't yeah. say that. Right. God didn't say that she was more righteous than <clears throat> Right. That's yeah, that this cat. is not the way that it's supposed to happen. Huh? Yeah. So okay. we're going to skip around. I know that that was the first story. We're going to skip around in the book because... Like we talked about in, in storytelling, I have a direction that I want us to go in our discussion. So we're going to jump around with the material some. I really enjoyed the, the last section in the book where he talked about the, the story of Ruth. Um, because it's one of those stories that is hard for us to understand. There, there are definitely are things, just based on the, you know, the preponderance of, of Bible studies that are available for the book of Ruth. Uh, obviously, there are lots of things there that people find relatable in, in our culture. But I think what I appreciated the most is how much emphasis they, the, the, the authors were able to shine on the things in the book that, that we miss out on, the, the richness of this story. Because, of course, you have, you have Ruth and you have uh, her, her sister-in-law, uh, that both, again, young, young women who become widowed because that's the kind of world that they lived in. Um, and, and they're being sent back to their homes because there's no longer a father in the house and there are no more sons and Naomi's not having any more, uh, in, any more kids. And so the, the estate is essentially just gone at this point. And so she just says, you guys are going to have to go back to your house. Um, you know, and you know, you surely you can, you can find, uh, you know, find a, a husband a, again. Her sister-in-law goes, but Ruth stays. And, and Ruth stays and she makes a, an incredible declaration in, in the book of Ruth where she says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And I, I appreciated the way that the, the, the author specifically dealt with the, the issues of, of Ruth being uh, a Moabite uh, and, and the, the long history that Again, for us, that tends to be like just one of those Bible words. We're like, oh, look, there's, there's somebody, the fill-in-the-blank, and they were walking next to so-and-so, the fill-in-the-blank, and, you know, they were heading up the hill to uh, that place over yonder. And we just, we, you know, our eyes just glass over and we, we, uh, we, we read through it. But, but to pause and say, what does it mean that she's from Moab and they're returning to Bethlehem? What, what does this mean for them to be going back into the, the land of Judah. What does it mean for them to, to be bringing all of that baggage with them? Uh, and that baggage becomes part of that story, doesn't it? This, this idea that she's coming in from Moab, that there is a long-standing fractured relationship between these, these two tribes, because we're, we're, we're kind of at that, that large scale level, these two tribes, the, the tribes of Judah uh, and, and the tribe of Moab, the, that there's such a long-standing history of, of violence between these two groups that the idea that somebody would say, I'm going to leave behind Moab and I'm going to journey into Judah and I'm going to become one of you. But she goes into that place without the expectation that there's going to be anything waiting for her on the other end, right? And it, there's, there's this incredible uh, hopefulness. There's this incredible faith 
that, that is there. Maybe not faith. I, the book, at least, that Ruth doesn't describe it is as faith in God, but maybe faith in Naomi, um, you know, which which at least in in at that part of the story is enough as uh, you know, that's that, that's enough for right now, at least. But there's this incredible trust that she has not knowing what's going to what, what's going to happen when she arrives, but knowing that she's going to stay with this person because she belongs to her and 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 i belong to her and she belongs to me this this idea of kinship that ties the two of them together in a way where she says no i'm not going to go back to my father's house you're my home you're my you're you're my house your your future your fate is going to be my fate so let's go and off they go toward this fate and the and and so they they bring all of that brokenness. What was it that, that drove somebody from Judah to move to to Moab, to, to Moab in, in the beginning? What was it that would cause somebody to go? Yeah, you had a question? Camel? Yes, they did. They probably took some kind of yeah, some some kind of transport that, that was, way. That was their Lamborghini. Yeah, exactly. So they 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 journeyed in here, but what was it that, that caused them to, to, to make that decision? Famine? Hmm? Oh, famine. A famine. There's some kind of a famine and it was it, it was it was intense enough that it disrupted everything in in that area so on their way back into judah they they get there and find out well we've got kin folk that live here maybe we can you know glean from their fields maybe maybe when when they go around we can we can pick up what the what the harvesters leave behind. That's and then, when the Levitical law comes into play. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, because this is far enough along that there's already a Levitical law that's that, that's in place about how you're how, how you are permitted to harvest the crops that you sow. And you have to leave the edges of the field and anything that you don't gather up on the first is is supposed to be there for the rest of the community that doesn't have fields to, to gather. I, I love the image of gleaning at the fields because because what's going on here is that Ruth and Naomi and those people are showing us people who live on the very margins of society. They they literally live on the they live they live near the outskirts of town. They only are allowed to gather up at the outskirts of the fields. These are literally people who live hand to mouth, who are who 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 survive based entirely on what it is that they're 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 able to be given by the people who are around them. It's uh you know it it's subsistence living on a level that we don't we don't conceive of in, in, in our culture. Um, you know, there are enough safety nets in most of our lives that the idea of having to follow the harvesters and pick up what they leave on the ground so that you can eat today just doesn't even occur to us. Like we can imagine it maybe, but not in our own context. And so there they are living on the margins and the only hope that they have, I, I love this, is that there would be a redeemer. That's the only hope that they have. Uh, the word in, in, in Hebrew and, and the way that it's used doesn't, it doesn't mean what we use it to mean. And, and I, I say that because when we use the word redemption, we have theological language attached to it. And that's good and important, and we're going to use it in just a few minutes, I promise. <laughs> but the word that they're using is somebody who buys back. So like, like when you bring a coupon to the store and redeem it, you hand them a coupon, and they redeem the coupon. When, when, family, uh, when family fortunes fall, somebody else outside the family has the responsibility of gathering those things up and bringing them back so that families aren't disintegrated because it's about 
kinship. It's this basic building block. If those things fall apart, like you were saying, like you have chaos. That, that, that's, that's all that happens. If the, the, the family estate is falling into pieces, the, the family estate is being pulled out in too many di directions, there's, there's no more safety, no more security for the people who are living there. And so what they do instead is that somebody <coughs> is responsible for stepping in and gathering those things back. And that person is called the kinsman redeemer or the redeemer of the blood. So this is somebody who, who, has, who has an obligation because of who he is in that family to step in and to bring salvation to the people who are in that situation. And so that's exactly what we're, what, what we're longing for here, isn't it? That, that somebody would step in and somebody would be, would, would, would be uh, the one who would bring redemption. I'm going to use the word healing here because I think that it, it helps us to see this this idea of people being marginalized and people being restored. We could we could use the word restored just just as uh, just as well just as easily there, uh, but it doesn't fit and it and, and it's long to write and I don't want to. So we're going to use the word that I wrote. <laughs> You have the power of the markers. That's right. I have the markers at the moment. It's a whiteboard, so there's some, there's there's a certain assumed level of impermanence here. But, <laughs> but but this is what we're hoping for in this story. We're we're reading this story, and just like when we're reading the story of Tamar, if if we if we put ourselves in 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 the place of somebody in a collectivist world, there's almost a sense where we're sort of leaned forward, listening. Like we lean in, waiting to see what's going to happen next. There's this anticipation. Is this one of those stories where the redeemer arrives? Is this one of those stories where the where 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 there's justice in the end? Is this one of those stories? And we're leaning and we're listening. There's this anticipation building in us. And I say all of those things because I want us to. Think about the story of Mary as it's related to us in Matthew's gospel. So in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew tells the story of Mary, there is not an annunciation in Matthew's gospel. The tricky thing for us is that we are so inundated with the Christmas story, as, as, especially if, if you have grown up in church. We're so inundated with it that we can't separate them out and see different versions of the story and them being told in one way. I do this when I play uh, Dungeons and Dragons with the kids, uh, you know, because you'll, you'll introduce a character and there will be a monster coming up and you describe it to them and suddenly they're all like, I know what that is. And they start saying, all right, this is a werewolf and we need to get silver and we've got to do this. And I have to pause and I have to stop everybody and say, all right, now, this is personal knowledge. We all have personal knowledge, but not character knowledge. Our character doesn't know what this is. We know this. The player knows this, but the character doesn't know this. So we can't we can't put that on the character because they don't know it yet. So let's pretend like the characters don't know this. So we have to read Matthew's gospel and pretend just for a moment, if it's at all possible, like we don't we're we're not reading it and we just have like the whole story of the Annunciation from Luke playing along in the background. All right. Matthew's gospel starts off with Joseph. And Joseph is betrothed to a woman whose name is Mary, and she's found to be pregnant. And so Joseph decides to quietly divorce her. And there is a world in those three or four sentences that the authors touch on that when you, when you press into those words in Matthew, the story begins to, begins to blossom and, and, and open up and bloom in an 
absolutely incredible way. Because I want you to think about this in, in the, the way that the authors describe this, that, that Joseph hears that, that the woman that he's betrothed to is with child, that she's, she's pregnant. And there's, there's not a lot of assumptions, but Joseph, at least, you know, let's ignore the community for a moment. They're important, but we'll ignore them for a moment. Joseph knows that it's not his. So he knows that something else was going on. And knowing that, Joseph decides to make the divorce quiet. Before anything else, the decision that Joseph makes is, I'm going to protect her. Because if he does this publicly, then the shame, the, the embarrassment, the, the, uh, the sin of whatever it is that has happened, it falls on Mary and her household. But if he does it quietly, she's eventually going to have a baby. And, you know, people in the ancient world can count nine months just as well as we can count nine months. And they can tell that, oh, well, this must have happened while they were, while they were betrothed. And so what Joseph does, he, we, they, they give a long discussion in, in the book that I think was really helpful in understanding what divorce looked like in, in that context. And so Joseph decides, I'm going to do it quietly. I'm going to take two friends with me uh, as, as witnesses, and I'm just going to, to sign it off, and it's going to be done. Joseph chooses there to take the shame of this on himself so that she'll be safe, so that she'll be protected, so that it doesn't fall on her. Before anything else happens, that tells us the kind of person that Joseph is. But if we don't know that backstory, we miss that because it's only, it, it's only three little verses long, right? That's not, some, that's not an assumption that we have about the way that the world works. But it is in, in the world of Mary and Joseph. In first century Palestine, that is the way the world worked. And Joseph made that choice. And then, almost immediately, an angel shows up and says, All right, this is God. You're going to be her protector. And you're going to call the child Joshua. You're going to call him Jesus because, he, because the word means God saves. You're going to call him God's salvation because God is coming to set his people free. And Joseph trusts. Joseph trusts. And so not only does Joseph not just simply put her away, because even if he had just put her away, culturally, he still is going to, going to not carry the full brunt of everything. But if he goes ahead and marries her, then the people in the community are always going to say, and in fact, the, 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 the authors point out at least one instance where the people in Jesus' community knew the story about Jesus being born and how he was born uh, he was conceived before the two of them were married and so they call him out on it they they the, the Pharisees talking to Jesus simply offhandedly say to him well we know who our father was which seems again like a throwaway line unless we understand the closeness of kinship and how close these communities are that people live in the the that this is something that's going to follow Jesus and is going to follow Mary entirely. The, the, the issue that Mary has is a very real danger. Did you just say danger? It makes it sound weird. When you use the word endangered for a person, it just has... It, uh, maybe it's just me. It, I watch too much Animal Planet or something. Like, right? Like she's, she's some kind of a special cat and you, don't, you never know what's going to happen. She's endangered. She's an endangered species. Right. <laughs> right. She's so there's danger. She is she's facing real and legitimate danger. And the solution for that is going to have to be 
somebody who steps in and saves her. In that society, if uh, he, he was going to quietly to divorce her to try to spare her, but even if he did that, eventually people are going to pregnant. Would she still have been in danger anyway, or she would? There, there definitely would have been shame, but it would have been different. Okay. Likely, what they would have done is sent her. Which Luke kind of implies they would have sent her out into the country to family that lives far away from town, who's in a different community, different kinship network, so that they don't know what's going on. And there's not that kind of connection. And then the kid grows up and he's just one of the cousins. And there's, there's ways culturally of, of hiding that. But it does mean that there's, there's going to be, uh, she, she's not going to have her own home. She's not going to have her own place. And that's kind of, that, that's kind of the danger of it as well being in danger like of being stoned or something that would have been up to him right, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. yeah and so he steps in and and saves her now <laughs> I've, I've run out of time again <sighs> did you talk too much I did okay so in John 4 <laughs> we're going for it in John 4, we have the Samaritan woman. Okay. All right? Oh, yeah. So in John 4, we have the Samaritan woman. And we, have, we, we read in the book, and I have shared with you guys many times, about the difficulty that we have because of the assumptions that we make about her, the things that we read into the story, that the story doesn't say. All right? There were all kinds of different marriage arrangements that existed in that world. In fact, I was sharing with Jessica... There, are, there were all kinds of different uh, marriage arrangements that existed in the American world and the English world up until right around the, the, like the late 1800s. Um, there were several different degrees of common law marriage. Uh, there, was a, there was a version of marriage in Scotland where you had like a trial period where you had, they called it a left-hand marriage. You would hold their left hand and instead of at church, you would do it outdoors, and you would make a promise, and then you would live as husband and wife for a year, and if everything worked out, then it was fine. Then you would go back to the church, and you would have a right-hand marriage where you'd put your right hands together, and the, and the pastor blessed you, and you were actually married. It was like a trial marriage period, and this was just life until the early 1800s. That was when people started saying, all right, well, let's, let's just pause for a moment, Okay. Let's reevaluate some of the way that this works. And, and some of that is cultural. There are reasons that people want their, the, the, the cultural landscape was shifting, the way that property values were shifting. There was a need for contracts to be uh, legitimate and all. There were, there were lots of, of social reasons that those changes happened, but it was still normal in the world at those times for there to be a number of different things. And these people were all at church together on Sunday. And that's, that, that's the entirety of the Middle Ages, that's the entirety of the Enlightenment. That's the, that, that, that's, it, it's all the way up until, you know, just, it, uh, we, we have those same laws in America about which kinds of marriages are legitimate. The, the, the whole American landscape of what marriage looks like is just as in flux until very recently, historically speaking. I know for us, we feel like 100 years ago, you know, 150 years is a really long time. It's not. It's, like it's a, not a very long time. It's like uh, people in America think 100 years is a long time. People in the UK think 100 miles is a long distance. Mm-hmm. 
That's it, exactly. So there are all of these different ways. There are still people today who think that common law marriage is legal. Is legal, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and, and th there are different degrees of that. So we don't have, there, there's nothing in the text that tells us what kind of relationship she's in. We already know because we've looked at the story of Tamar and the story of Ruth and a number of other stories to see that women who were very young became widows often in the ancient world. So it's completely understandable that she's had four husbands. And it doesn't tell us anything about her relationship with the one that, she, that she's with now. It just says that you're with someone who's not your husband. It could be any of those common law marriages. It could be, uh, it could be her father. It could be one of her brothers. It could be one of the, 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 somebody in the kinfolk relationship with one of those four people that she was married to. We bring our own assumptions to the text and decide what we want to learn about her character. But here's what I want us to pay attention to. When we see this story about the Samaritan woman, we can see in this story somebody who's vulnerable, somebody who lives on the margins, somebody who's experiencing danger in her life. And here's what I want us to pay attention to. In the story of Tamar, and the story of Ruth, and the story of Rahab, and the story of Bathsheba, we have people who are still in these same places, and these people are the heart of Jesus. It's not just their stories. Matthew tells us at the very beginning of his story that these people are a part of who Jesus is at the very core of himself. That as they were vulnerable and living at the margins and in danger, he was there. He was literally there with them. But he was there with them in, in, in their person, and they are with him in his person. When he looks at the Samaritan woman, he does the thing that we've been longing to see in all of those stories, and sometimes do and sometimes don't. He protects the people who are vulnerable, and he heals the people who are at the margins, and he restores the people, he saves the people who are in danger. That what Jesus does is to step into those places and becomes the kinsman who redeems. Right? We see salvation and we see redemption in Jesus because of what we have. We see them more clearly because we understand where he's come from and what that means. But so much of that is hidden to us if we ignore kinship. If we just start at the book of Matthew and we skip over those first 40 verses and we're like, that doesn't matter. I'm just going to read this part. And we're like, okay, well, this is Joseph and I know he makes the right choice. Let me turn the page. All right, what happens next? Oh, there's the wise men. I love that wise men story. That's cool. Okay, and then uh, I guess there, there's the temptation. I know that, right? Like this temptation that we have is to sit with these stories and to just have them, have them wash over us. But if we sit and are very intentional about encountering Scripture because we know that Scripture gives to us the story of God at work with his people then what happens is that if we have that trust, that basic assumption as we open up the Bible and begin to read, then I think I want to suggest to us that what we're going to find is that the story of Jesus has been there all along. And we're going to find it in ways that we never anticipated before. So my suggestion for us is that as we continue through this book, I want us to pay specific attention to where are the places where the authors are helping us to pause and to listen more intentionally as we're reading scripture? Because I don't want us to get to the end of this book and to walk away from it going, well, that was really interesting. And, you know, I'll, I've, I've got that marked. You know, I remember that was in the prologue. So the next time that I read the story of Joseph, I'm probably going to open up the introduction and 
reread that part because that'll give me some some good thoughts about Joseph as I'm rereading that story. I don't want that to be what we encounter as we're reading this book together. What I want us to to come away from this study is to hear a new way of of reading scripture and not a new way in the sense that we're going to have new and exciting things that happen every time, but I want us to have a vocabulary in in our minds that we can use so that as we read scripture, we just slow down a little bit and we ask questions like, I wonder who this person is connected to or what happened in the chapter right before this so I can understand what is going on in, in the whole of this altogether so that I can look at this passage and say, this is an interesting phrase. I wonder why they use that phrase. And then to have resources to go and answer those questions and to create the kind of environment in St. Aidan's where we can read these stories and ask those questions together just like we do on our own so that this can be uh, a way that we together talk about reading scripture. That's my goal. In the story from John 4, we see all of those things and we see that the person who's sitting there at the well is Jesus who has been all of those things and is also the solution to all of those things, is the salvation in all of those things. And that he's there inviting her into a new kind of community. And the thought that I I would like for us to go out with is, what does it look like for us to be Tamar and Ruth and Mary? Which, especially for the the guys, is not a place that we're used to reading because we're used to like telling the story where we do all the protecting and redeeming and saving and all of that. But what does it look like for us to say, I need to find those things? What does it look like to see ourselves in the place of Tamar and Ruth and Mary and the, and, and the Samaritan woman? And then what does it look like for us together as a community, right? We're talking about that, that kinship language for us as a, as a household of faith at St. Aidan's. What does it look like for us to protect the vulnerable? What does it look like for us to redeem the people who are at the margins? What does it look like for us to to rescue those people that are in danger? Um, And the answer to that may be different. Uh, It it will likely be unique to us in in this particular household of faith. Uh, But those are things that I think are worth considering, worth talking about as we head into the next chapter. And we're going to start talking about patronage. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.